I'd like to invite Niall back on stage. And for the first time today, I'd also like to invite Dr. Amanda Parks up to the stage. Uh, Amanda is uh, coming through a stint as the Chief Technology Officer uh, at Manufacture New York and is now the Chief Innovation Officer at the newly founded Fashion Tech Lab. She'll tell us a little bit more about that later on, but we brought her up here to discuss fashion tech, sort of this initial overview. And one of the things that struck me is the juxtaposition between the work I've done and the work Matthew's done, which have been a lot of one-offs, a lot of editorials, and not a whole lot of real meat and bones products. You have a real product out there, a real platform. Do you see a way to bridge this gap? <laughs> yes. Um, but I, I've got on this time. Um, I think that the now that we're actually getting uh, a scale implementation of technology on on products, and we've got programmability in the cloud, we're we're at a transition point. Um, things are doable at scale. Um, the 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 challenge is to mobilize the creative community and and get people plugged into the toolkits to be able to create on top of these platforms. That's an interesting point about the creativity. I mean, I wonder if we might actually have a crisis of creativity because a lot of fashion tech ends up being driven by the tech company, like Matthew said, looking for a usage. And as an anthropologist, that really grinds at me. You know, I, I want to have an understanding of what people value and drive from there. Now, Matthew, have you had any experience with that kind of thing, actually doing ethnographic or design research up front? Or is that really not part of... Uh, so, I mean, I, I benefit greatly from the Digital Anthropology Lab um, and I steal all of their great ideas and, and then go and make something. But yes, we do. We have that ecosystem where um, we have uh, a bank of researchers who are looking longer term blue sky and then, you know, we just try and figure out what we can do right now. So I think, yeah, it, it's a difficult thing to achieve and Amanda can talk to that. Yeah, I, I actually want to disagree with you on the idea that we're having a crisis in creativity because um, I actually think what's going on is that we don't have the enabling technologies to be to allow the creatives to, uh, you know, use the tools that they're the medium, the the, the way that they want to express themselves. So, for example, you know, we're we you, who was talking about hard circuits and trying to make them flexible. You know, all of the modalities that fashion designers actually work in actively are not really represented by the technology tools that we have. So I think for a lot of people who have been working in wearables for a long time, like I'm about 14 years into it, um, you see them transitioning from making commercial products into making enabling technology, sensors, uh, connectors, things that are really unsexy as products, but are really necessary for the future of the creative space. Yeah, I mean, I, I, say, I say this almost to, to provoke and yeah, I'm, I'm glad amanda never fails to pick <laughs> up on a provocation <laughs> but i mean there there are things like we're starting to see you know things that look like ribbons and things that look like uh elastic that actually have you know good cabling and them good wiring washable wiring but um it's still you know scaling washability still continue to be problems um the other thing i was curious about niall with your work is you're talking about programmability in the cloud so who controls that? Good question. Um, I think the, the consumer fundamentally, actually. Um, now, the you know the logical conclusion here would be that brands are accumulating all this data and the brands control the data. But there's a, I think there's a really interesting paradox in um, in data rights, really. 
Um, if you think about the fact that in this world of, uh, of data accumulation and super personalization, that in order for brands to be competitive, they need to be able to provide a super personalized experience, which means that they have to demonstrate their trustability towards the consumer. Um, and consumers aren't going to share data if they don't trust a brand. And so there's a fantastic tension in that, I think. So whilst you know the ownership of a data is arguable as to where that where that lives, uh, the accountability is very much on the brand, and the power is very much in the consumer's hands, I believe. Um, and increasingly, we'll see that actually manifest from a re regulatory standpoint. So is there a move to be transparent about how the data is used? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, we see you know, regulatory requirements moving in that in that direction. But but before that, actually, I think that consumer demand is such that there's an increasing degree of of, of inherent accountability. Show me what you're doing with my data. Um, you know, in a cosmetics context, I was uh, I was in a fascinating conversation with. Uh, um, some young ladies who spend an incredible amount of money on cosmetics, but um, explaining to the CEO of a cosmetics company that were quite relaxed about sharing their their data with the brand, just don't do something stupid was their uh, was their guideline <laughs> with it. You know, that sounds akin to Google's "Do No Evil," <laughs> and I, I always I, I take a second uh, breath when I when I hear the big companies saying things like this because I think ultimately. You know, the individual is is probably not as informed, you know, as they ought to be about specifically how their data is being used, by whom, and for what. And is there a way that I can turn off, for instance, this cloud controlling data that I'm working on? Uh, you know, no and yes, right? Um, I, I I don't know. I'm I'm to be slightly controversial about it. I think that there's a, a real generational gap here. Uh, I don't see the millennial generation in particular, and basically the sub-35-year-old generation particularly concerned with it uh, in terms of data, data management. I'm talking now in Western, uh, Western and developed economy environments predominantly. Um, and uh, and yeah, there's just no statistical evidence, uh, even post-Snowden announcements, that had zero statistical impact on people sharing behavior on social media, for example, right? And I think that's important to, to point to. But that doesn't mean that there isn't accountability, because whilst at a macro level people are sharing their data, at a micro level on individual brands, you know, there's there's good examples of people you know just pulling away from a, from from a, from a brand if they can't uh, they can't trust them. Yeah, I'll, I'll leave that there for the moment. But at some point, I'd like to come back to that notion of uh, the permanence of of the digital versus the ephemerality of you know what our lived lives are, where we can forget and it's okay. Can I make one comment about data yeah, before we move on? Yeah, yeah. Um, I just wanted to add that the the whole process of the collection of data is is one of the major ways that we will move the entire industry of wearable tech forward. I think I love the, your self-deprecated nature of the kinds of things that you were making with the screens and all this. And I think that what that really points out is that um, I like to use the analogy of, uh, you know, where we are in wearable tech is where we were with the internet in about 1995. 
So it was a clunky bulletin board, which you could sort of share messages on. It was very hard for anybody to imagine, you know, let, you know where we are now that you could, you know, order a, a taxi, rent your apartment, you know, all the service models and everything. It was hard to imagine the creative space that it would become. And so I think that one of the things that data will provide us as we collect it is, um, you know, all of the information about the body that we don't even know what we can do with yet. We don't know the correlations of it. We don't. So, so there's, so from a very like abstract uh, point of view, anonymous point of view with the data, that's a really important point to try to open that up and figure out how, how can we make that useful um, and do the algorithmic analysis on it to, to move us forward into those new creative um, in, in areas. So you know, just to link that back to your, you know, the, the creative uh, challenge, I, you know, what we've seen in the web is that as soon as we created um, super connectivity of data, right? I mean, a Google search is a, a radically composed application of a diverse set of data, you know, on demand, right? And that happens, for taking for granted, every time you type in a search expression, an incredible amount of data is aggregated and delivers, delivers you a personal result. Um, and that has just, you know, exploded value within the web. And what we've got to do with the physical things is we have to get that same degree of mobility of data. Um, and, uh, and so in, a, in, in our world of, of delivering the platforms, that's, that's our principal challenge, is to get the data into an understandable form and a mashable form um, so that, uh, that you can create on top of that um, with the lowest possible level of friction. And I think another point related to this is that so long as we keep thinking in isolated buckets, one item, one item, one item, the use cases are going to be super constrained and pretty unexciting. Things get pretty interesting when you start connecting things together, radically diverse sets of data. Um, and uh, so we aren't constrained with what can be done only on the thing. We, we're, we, you know, we have an entire web and an entire digital ecosystem to build around as well, and that's the big opportunity. And I think that's what is genuinely exciting because when we make one-offs and uh, I, I have a slide uh, which shows uh, the Mark Zuckerberg collection, <laughs> Mark collaborating with H&M and <laughs> what that would look like. And it's a set of five grey t-shirts and five, five blue jeans. Because um, I guess the majority of us uh, are different to Mark. We like to wear different things every single day. So at that... <laughs> That use case of are we seriously embedding electronics into every single piece of clothing and do we want that use case in every single item to be different is enormously challenging. How do you get scale to that? So that creation of a platform where something can, is technology agnostic, connects in different ways, becomes really interesting as to how you might use it for each individual piece of clothing. But each time when we talk about scale and we talk about value, we seem to be talking about value for the big company, value for the controlling entity. Um, and this concerns me. You know, I, I look for a future where people can control the flow of their data. Do you think that's even possible? Is it, or is the cat out of the bag? I, you know, I'm, you're from the big company. So, uh, but, uh, um, <laughs> I'm the, the iconoclast. <laughs> I don't know. I think I think that um, you know, certainly I believe that sustainably for anything to operate, it, it has to provide meaningful value to the consumer. And you know, I mean, obviously the joke goes: if something's free, you're the product, right? Um, which is certainly the case for the uh, for for the world of, of of social media. But 
but uh, but values delivered to the consumer, and that value exchange is you know demonstrably sustained. Um, so uh, I think I go back to my original point that the, that there is a tension there that 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 the big companies have to have to respect. Uh, you know, there will be accountability. There is increasing degrees of accountability. But the notion of somebody unplugging themselves and removing themselves from from the world, whilst in theory we've all got a kill switch, uh, I doubt I doubt anybody's going to use it. I'm not sure I believe in unplug. I think I, I think what I'm advocating for is more of a maybe a democratic rights or human rights of personal data. You know, because I I can envision a future where it's fungible. I plug it in and I pull it back. You can't know where I am all the time. I don't think that's right. Well, we have precedent for this, right? In the financial services market, uh, Sobbins Oxley requires every transaction to be traceable and so on. And I think that is inherently what's, what's happening, right? Metadata is tagged with metadata, and there is a traceability and an accountability, and that'll, that'll happen. So I, th- I think that, that that flow of accountability will come about. That's kind of interesting. Uh, Matthew, you're smiling. I think, is, is there almost a link with uh, blockchain here? Well, th- with, yes, there is, obviously. <laughs> but I mean, I, I had a chat with um, Nas colleague Andy at South By, and that holding on to data, if you want to use the larger platforms, if you're holding your data back from Facebook, does Facebook allow you then to use the platform if you're not sharing your data? Where do you pick and choose? Where does that interaction begin? I think it... It's enormously challenging. I, I, I agree. I would like to see an element of control come back into it. But yeah, that, is the cat out of the bag already? I don't know. Right? Yeah. That's, that, that's something to really think about. Yeah. You're, you're getting very personal data. And I know that in the sports world, they're actually asking these questions. If a professional athlete is asked to wear a wearable device while he's sleeping to gauge if he's getting appropriate sleep, and a crime happens that somebody says they saw that guy at, are they allowed to subpoena that information because they know he happens to have a wearable? Who owns it? Who owns access to it? So I think in the digital era, it's about access. You know, and not to, I don't want to keep beating the point around data, <laughs> but I, I believe it's super important to think about the flow of data, how it's created, how it's destroyed, if that's even possible, and how it's exchanged and so forth. I want to shift a little bit to another major theme around materiality. Because, Amanda, this is kind of a specialty of yours. I mean... Every time I visited Amanda in New York, there's something weird brewing on her desk, like literally, um, you know, whether it's kombucha leather or things Don't like drink that. Don't drink that coffee. <laughs> yeah, right? So can you say something about things that maybe you see that look like sustainable opportunities in the new materials area? Yeah. And I mean, I think I'm going to be giving a talk about this in this next session, but I think generally um, after you know being in this industry for a while, I've really kind of come to the to the reality that we have to be looking at new materials first and not just new materials, um, sustainable, sustainably for textiles, things, you know, that are just pa- what I call passive materials, um, you know, just regular kinds of, of non-electronic materials, but also moving into this transformation of how we can get interactivity and the, the, the properties and principles of electronics from different kinds of biological materials. So different things have, um, you know, capacitance, they have, you know, the resistance, et cetera. So we can actually create circuits from more naturally occurring substances and also use 
biological organisms to grow things for us and control kind of how biology performs. And I know that sounds very, it can be interpreted as very dystopic, but there are ways in which it is, it can be incredibly controlled and um, in utilized as, you know, cells as the factory of the future. That's really the fourth industrial revolution. Right. It sounds like you're referring a little bit to some of the stuff at MIT and things like that. You know, the living organisms on our garments that actually could create actuation, opening events, closing events, and so forth. So I can't wait to hear Amanda's talk because there's some creepy yet interesting things happening <laughs> out there. Um, but I think that use of technology to change consumer behavior is also another interesting way. Like, Yeah, well, I think one of the, one of the, the ways that I think about it is, you know, we right now think of there, there's this divide between what, regular clothes, passive clothes that are made of whatever fiber, but they might be very high-tech fibers. You know, fibers, science is a technology in itself. It's, textiles are one of our oldest forms of technology, and people tend to forget about that, especially the, te the tech industry tends to forget about that. Um, but, you know, there's this divide between that and then things that we think of as electronic that are charged, things that have a battery, something that you have to plug in. And as we move more into, you know, the convergence of nanos, nanotech um, and material science, where we start to have, you know, bat fiber batteries, which I'll show later, um, and where everything can be seen as a seamless, invisible textile. So if you have a, a circuit that's woven and that feels exactly like this, that say has a solar fiber and a battery fiber, and you can, you know, charge it passively from light and from sun and it holds the charge and then it does whatever interactive, you know, functionality, can we start to just think about, well, you know, is that is that an active garment? Is that an electronic device? And I think in the future, as we move forward with creativity, we'll have designers, you know, in the, in the way that they pick textiles now about functionality, you want it, how do you want it to stretch? How do you want it to perform? We'll just you know, extend that functional decision into interactivity. Oh, I want this to control my heat. I want, you know, like these kinds of things that will just be, um, you know, just we're going to ask more of our actual materials and, and the way that they get programmed will become much more seamless and invisible. And I think that's the pressing point where people will no longer be either sort of scared or, you know, allergic to the idea of tech, et cetera, where the, when the tech becomes invisible. Yeah, I, I I think that that points out a lot of interesting things where there's a, a cross between biology and technology and all these things. And I think that is this sort of almost renaissance flair to the way technology and fashion are melding together because you have to be almost a polymath or somebody who has at least some expertise. I mean, it sounds like a bad joke every time I say it, but I mean, look up here. We have an anthropologist, a social scientist, a technologist, and a historian walk into a bar. Yeah, they're making fashion <laughs> tech. Talking about organism, biological. Right? I mean, and, and this happens all the time in successful collaborations. And collaborations came up again and again in these discussions, and I think they're going to come up all day. And I, I've always felt, you know, it's not even just two people. It's always a lot more. There's always what, you know, and I'd hope that we get to a point where you drive from the experience. You know, here's what we'd envision this doing. And then what do we need to make that happen? We talk about that a lot. I mean, all of those projects that we show, that that's not one company. That's a group of people that come together. It's cross-disciplinary. And we need to bring those people together to start making a difference. And that's where there's such a huge opportunity. And is it, is it cross-disciplinary? Or, I mean, I had a conversation with um, Joel the, from Parsons. And it was interesting that he chose instead transdisciplinary. Because the notion there is that you are actually working across, 
Whereas, yeah, there might be a double entendre. But, but I mean, the notion that you're actually working across, it's not, you know, I'm meeting you and, you know, I think it has a different connotation, right? Almost more, the, the power relationship might be removed in, in trans. I'm not sure. But... I also think that we need to extend that no, that notion not just from kind of individuals collaborating, but um, up to a company and corporate level. And I think that's where where most of the kind of issues you know really are occurring in terms of um, how the fashion industry operates from a business point of view, their priorities, um, you know, versus tech. And that's where we're having this clash. I mean. Fashion doesn't have a history of internal research in its companies. And then they spend, you know, and, and it, what happens is that the tech industry thinks that fashion doesn't have any money, which is ridiculous. And, and but, but fashion spends the kind of dollars that would go into R&D on more on like marketing and advertising. And that could be going towards, you know, owning their own supply chain, creating their own fibers and textiles in the way that, you know, Intel creates everything for itself. And, you know, but companies like that are actually, you know, owning owning their... Um, their means of production for here's here's what we're going to be doing five years out. Here's how we can save our company later. You know, not just not by selling the product that we're already making now. But I think we've also got to innovate. Um, you know, we're, we're thinking of this very in much in terms of materials and so forth in the moment of the item. But you've also got to innovate how the whole process is working oh, yeah. within the industry. You know, why do we need to wash stuff? Right? Uh, it's 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 difficult to have circuitry and to wash things, right? Um, so either we solve uh, uh, washable circuitry or we solve having to wash stuff. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, uh, and so if we, can, if we can come up with a way of not washing things in the conventional fashion... I've already we, worked you know, that we, we can... Yeah. We, we can <laughs> and if you, if you look at the, the, the water consumption in the world consumed by, by apparel, it's, it's enormous. It's yeah. one, of the biggest, one of the biggest challenges that we have. So I think that there's some pretty lateral thinking that has to go into... You know, where where are the where the where are the the, the funding opportunities that uh, that can drive interesting economies here? I talked a little bit in my talk about you know recycling um, because when you look at the economy of uh, of of the secondary market of apparel, um, you know it's eBay's eBay's biggest category, right? Um, and it's uh, it's largely unmonetized by the by by the primary brands in the in in the industry and there's an entire develop developing economy uh, um, ecosystem again that's unfunded so but a lot of this comes from lack of connectivity so if we can bring the data and the connectivity together then we can shift eco economics and we and we, and we and that creates new opportunities so I think we have to we have to look at this quite holistically and, and look where the technology is going to be able to impact it quite holistically. Yeah, I think the direction this has taken is really interesting when we think about business models because this becomes quite difficult. I know in the collaborations we have, there are dramatically different expectations about scale, about margin, um, and, and who participates um, that just don't line up. It just, and I think somebody, it's almost like a, a game of, of chicken. You know, it's like, I'm not touching my margin. I'm not touching mine, but at some point this has to give. Somebody's got to realize that in order for us to move forward, we need to rethink how we monetize. And you're thinking a little bit about that. And I think, uh, you know, if you, when you start looking at cradle to cradle, like you're, you know, you're suggesting, you know, it'd be interesting if we always had that provenance of could I prove it? You know, it's like X percent of my clothing ends up recycled. I mean, I think I was talking to Matthew last night about. I was looking at a Volvo car, and it was suggesting, like, 
some ridiculously high amount was recycled. And I'm like, that's amazing. You know, I would buy the car mainly because of that. You know, it's all recycled. So, but also, let's be crass for a second and say that you know it's all yes, it's great. Amanda goes there, but but there's a lot of money on the table to be claimed. I mean, wearable tech is the fastest growing part of the tech industry, and fashion should be up there claiming. I mean, fashion industry knows how to do a lot of the stuff better than the tech industry does that needs to be made for these products, and they're just leaving the money on the table. And so that's that's kind of where it's like that's the wake up call. I think it's like yeah, I I mean, I'm all I'm a scientist. I'm all about doing good and sustainability, (laughs) but you know, if you need to make an argument to to, to corporations, that's the argument. Well, yeah. to, the, to that point, right? And if you think of a physical item as, an, as a media asset um, uh, and the interaction that I'm having with my clothing item, and that's monetizable, that's directly sellable as a as, as a data point. I mean, I'm I'm I'm, yeah. I'm violating your principle here of uh, of, of data protection. You're but, selling my data. But, uh, selling your data, but but literally that monetization it, it has opportunity is directly capable of funding yeah. the technology and the product, right? Um, and a recurring revenue stream that's yeah. not tied to a physical product, which is something that fashion doesn't have right now. Yeah, I mean, and that that sort of takes me back. I mean, you made the comment about data as the new oil. I don't believe that. You know, I think data is is a sustainable resource. Data changes. Data comes back. Data is renewable. Better oil in that sense. Yeah. <laughs> it's better than oil in that sense. So with that, we're going to close out this session and have a coffee break. Thank you. Yeah.